0: Section 10 of Yet Again by Max Beerbohm. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Whistler's Writing. No book-lover, I, give me an uninterrupted view of my fellow-creatures. The most tedious of them pleases me better than the best book. You see, I admit that some of them are tedious i do not deem alien from myself nothing that is human i discriminate my fellow-creatures according to their contents and in that respect i am not more different in my way from the true humanitarian than from the true bibliophile in his to him the content of a book matters not at all he loves books because they are books and discriminates them only by the irrelevant standard of their rarity a rare book is not less dear to him because it is unreadable even as to the snob a dull duke is as good as a bright one indeed why should he bother about readableness he doesn't want to read uncut edges for him when he can get them and even when he can't the notion of reading a rare edition would seem to him quite uncouth and preposterous the aforesaid snob would as soon question his grace about the state of his grace's soul i on the other hand whenever human company is denied me have often a desire to read reading i prefer to cut edges because a paper-knife is one of the things that have the gift of invisibility whenever they are wanted, and because one's thumb, in prising open the pages, so often affects the text. Many volumes have I thus mutilated, and I hope that in the sale-rooms of a sentimental posterity they may fetch higher prices than their duly uncut duplicates. So long as my thumb tatters merely the margin, I am quite equanimous. If I were reading a first folio Shakespeare by my fireside, and if the match-box were ever so little beyond my reach, I vow I would light my cigarette with a spill made from the margin of whatever page I were reading. I am neat, scrupulously neat, in regard to the things I care about but a book as a book is not one of these things of course a book may happen to be in itself a beautiful object such a book i treat tenderly as one would a flower and such a book is in its brown papered boards whereon gleam little gilt italics and a little gilt butterfly whistler's gentle art of making enemies It happens to be also a book which I have read again and again, a book that has often travelled with me, yet its cover is as fresh as when first, some twelve years since, it came into my possession. A flower freshly plucked, one would say, a brown and yellow flower, with a little gilt butterfly fluttering over it. AND ITS INNER PETALS, ITS DELICATELY PROPORTIONED PAGES, ARE AS WHITE AND undishevelled AS THOUGH THEY NEVER HAD BEEN OPENED. THE BOOK LIES OPEN BEFORE ME AS I WRITE. I MUST BE CAREFUL OF MY PEN'S TRANSIT FROM INKPOT TO MANUSCRIPT. YET, I KNOW, MANY WORTHY FOLK WOULD LIKE THE BOOK BLOTTED OUT OF EXISTENCE these are they who understand and love the art of painting but neither love nor understand writing as an art for them the gentle art of making enemies is but something unworthy of a great man certainly it is a thing incongruous with a great hero and for most people it is painful not to regard a great man as also a great hero hence all the efforts to explain away the moral characteristics deducible from the gentle art of making enemies and to prove that whistler beneath a prickly surface was saturated through and through with the quintessence of the sermon on the mount well hero-worship is a very good thing it is a wholesome exercise which we ought all to take now and again only let us not strain ourselves by overdoing it let us not indulge in it too constantly let hero-worship be reserved for heroes and there was nothing heroic about whistler except his unfaltering devotion to his own ideals in art no saint was he and none would have been more annoyed than he by canonization would he were here to play as he would have played incomparably the devil's advocate so far as he possessed the christian virtues his faith was in himself his hope was for the immortality of his own works and his charity was for the defects in those works he is known to have been an affectionate son an affectionate husband but for the rest all the tenderness in him seems to have been absorbed into his love for such things in nature as were expressible through terms of his own art as a man in relation to his fellow-men he cannot from any purely christian standpoint be applauded he was inordinately vain and cantankerous enemies as he has wittily implied were a necessity to his nature and he seems to have valued friendship a thing never really valuable in itself to a really vain man as just the needful foundation for future enmity quarrelling and picking quarrels he went his way through life blithely most of those quarrels were quite trivial and tedious in the ordinary way they would have been forgotten long ago as the trivial and tedious details in the lives of other great men are forgotten but whistler was great not merely in painting not merely as a wit and dandy in social life he had also an extraordinary talent for writing he was a born writer he wrote in his way perfectly and his way was his own and the secret of it has died with him thus conducting them through the post-office he has conducted his squabbles to immortality immortality is a big word i do not mean by it that so long as this globe shall endure the majority of the crawlers round it will spend the greater part of their time in reading the gentle art of making enemies even the pre-eminently immortal works of Shakespeare are read very little. The average of time devoted to them by Englishmen cannot, even though one assumes mr frank harris at eight hours per diem and mr sidney Lee at twenty-four, tot up to more than a small fraction of a second in a lifetime reckoned by the psalmist's limit. When I dub Whistler an immortal writer, I do but mean that so long as there are a few people interested in the subtler ramifications of English prose as an art form, so long will there be a few constantly recurring readers of the gentle art. There are in England, at this moment, a few people to whom prose appeals as an art but none of them, I think, has yet done justice to Whistler's prose. None has taken it with the seriousness it deserves. I am not surprised. When a man can express himself through two media, people tend to take him lightly in his use of the medium to which he devotes the lesser time and energy, even though he used that medium not less admirably than the other, and even though they themselves care about it, more than they care about the other. Perhaps this very preference in them creates a prejudice against the man who does not share it, and so makes them sceptical of his power. Anyhow, if Disraeli had been unable to express himself through the medium of political life, Disraeli's novels would long ago have had the due which the expert is just beginning to give them. Had Rossetti not been primarily a poet, the expert in painting would have acquired, long ago, his present penetration into the peculiar value of Rossetti's painting. Likewise, if Whistler had never painted a picture, and, even so, had written no more than he actually did write, this essay in appreciation would have been forestalled again and again. As it is i am a sort of herald and however loudly i shall blow my trumpet not many people will believe my message for many years to come it will be the fashion among literary critics to pooh-pooh whistler the writer as an amateur for whistler was primarily a painter not less than was rossetti primarily a poet and disraeli a statesman and he will not live down quicklier than they the taunt of amateurishness in his secondary art. Nevertheless, I will, for my own pleasure, blow the trumpet. I grant you Whistler was an amateur, but you do not dispose of a man by proving him to be an amateur. On the contrary, an amateur with real innate talent May do, must do, more exquisite work than he could do if he were a professional. His very ignorance and tentativeness may be, must be, a means of especial grace. Not knowing how to do things, having no ready-made and ready-working apparatus, and being in constant fear of failure, he has to grope always in the recesses of his own soul for the best way to express his soul's meaning he has to shift for himself and to do his very best consequently his work has a more personal and fresher quality and a more exquisite finish than that of a professional howsoever finely endowed all of the much that we admire in walter pater's prose comes of the lucky chance that he was an amateur and never knew his business had fate thrown him out of oxford upon the world the world would have been the richer for the prose of another john addington simmons and would have forfeited walter pater's prose in other words we should have lost a half-crown and found a shilling had fate withdrawn from whistler his vision for form and colour leaving him only his taste for words and phrases and cadences whistler would have settled solidly down to the art of writing and would have mastered it and mastering it have lost that especial quality which the muse grants only to them who approach her timidly bashfully as suitors perhaps i am wrong perhaps whistler would never in any case have acquired the professional touch in writing for we know that he never acquired it in the art to which he dedicated all but the surplus of his energy compare him with the other painters of his day he was a child in comparison with them they with sure science solved roughly and readily problems of modeling and drawing and what not that he never dared to meddle with it has often been said that his art was an art of evasion but the reason of the evasion was reverence he kept himself reverently at a distance he knew how much he could not do nor was he ever confident even of the things that he could do and these things therefore he did superlatively well having to grope for the means in the recesses of his soul the particular quality of exquisiteness and freshness that gives to all his work whether on canvas or on stone or on copper a distinction from and above any contemporary work and makes it dearer to our eyes and hearts is a quality that came to him because he was an amateur, and that abided with him because he never ceased to be an amateur. He was a master through his lack of mastery. In the art of writing, too, he was a master through his lack of mastery. There is an almost exact parallel between the two sides of his genius— nothing could be more absurd than the general view of him as a masterly professional on the one side and a trifling amateur on the other he was certainly a painter who wrote but by the slightest movement of fate's little finger he might have been a writer who painted and this essay have been written not by me from my standpoint but by some painter eager to suggest that whistler's painting was a quite serious thing yes that painting and that writing are marvellously akin and such differences as you will see in them are superficial merely i spoke of whistler's vanity in life and i spoke of his timidity and reverence in art that contradiction is itself merely superficial bob acres was timid but he was also vain. His swagger was not an empty assumption to cloak his fears. He really did regard himself as a masterful and daredevil fellow, except when he was actually fighting. Similarly, except when he was set at his work, Whistler, doubtless, really did think of himself as a brilliant, effortless butterfly. The pose was, doubtless, a quite sincere one a necessary reaction of feeling well in his writing he displays to us his vanity whilst in his painting we discern only his reverence in his writing too he displays his harshness swoops hither and thither a butterfly equipped with the sharp little beak and talons whereas in his painting we are conscious only of his caressing sense of beauty BUT LOOK FROM THE WRITER, AS SHOWN BY HIMSELF, TO THE MEANS BY WHICH HIMSELF IS SHOWN. YOU WILL FIND THAT FOR WORDS, AS FOR COLOR-TONES, HE HAS THE SAME REVERENT CARE, AND FOR PHRASES, AS FOR FORMS, THE SAME CARESSING SENSE OF BEAUTY. FASTIDIOUSNESS, Daintiness, as he would have said, dandyishness, as we might well say, by just that which marks him as a painter is he marked as a writer too his meaning was ever ferocious but his method how delicate and tender the portrait of his mother whom he loved was not wrought with a more loving hand than were his portraits of mr harry quilter for the world his style never falters The silhouette of no sentence is ever blurred. Every sentence is ringing with a clear vocal cadence. There, after all, in that vocal quality, is the chief test of good writing. Writing, as a means of expression, has to compete with talking. The talker need not rely wholly on what he says. He has the help of his mobile face and hands and of his voice, with its various inflections, and its variable pace, whereby he may insinuate fine shades of meaning, qualifying or strengthening at will, and clothing naked words with colour, and making dead words live. But the writer? He can express a certain amount through his handwriting, if he write in a properly elastic way, but his writing is not printed in facsimile it is printed in cold mechanical monotonous type for his every effect he must rely wholly on the words that he chooses and on the order in which he ranges them and on his choice among the few hard and fast symbols of punctuation He must so use those slender means that they shall express all that he himself can express through his voice and face and hands, or all that he would thus express if he were a good talker. Usually the good talker is a dead failure when he tries to express himself in writing. For that matter, so is the bad talker but the bad talker has the better chance of success inasmuch as the inexpressiveness of his voice and face and hands will have sharpened his scent for words and phrases that shall in themselves convey such meanings as he has to express whistler was that rare phenomenon the good talker who could write as well as he talked read any page of the gentle art of making enemies and you will hear a voice in it, and see a face in it, and see gestures in it. And none of these is quite like any other known to you. It matters not that you never knew Whistler, never even set eyes on him. You see him, and know him, here. The voice draws slowly, quickening to a kind of snap at the end of every sentence, and sometimes rising to a sudden screech of laughter. And, all the while, the fine, fierce eyes of the talker are flashing out at you, and his long, nervous fingers are tracing extravagant arabesques in the air. No, you need never have seen Whistler to know what he was like. He projected, through printed words, the clean-cut image and clear rigging echo of himself he was a born writer achieving perfection through pains which must have been infinite for that we see at first sight no trace of them at all like himself necessarily his style was cosmopolitan and eccentric it comprised americanisms and cockneyisms and parisian argot, with constant reminiscences of the authorized version of the old testament and with chips off Moliere, and with shreds and tags of what-not, snatched from a hundred and one queer corners. It was, in fact, an autolycine style. It was a style of the maddest motley, but of motley so deftly cut and fitted to the figure, and worn with such an air as to become a gracious harmony for all beholders.' After all, what matters is not so much the vocabulary as the manner in which the vocabulary is used. Whistler never failed to find right words and the right cadence for a dignified meaning when dignity was his aim. And when the evening mist clothes the riverside with poetry, as with a veil, and the poor buildings lose themselves in the dim sky, And the tall chimneys become campanili, and the warehouses are palaces in the night, and the whole city hangs in the heavens, and fairyland is before us. That is as perfect in its dim and delicate beauty as any of his painted nocturnes. But his aim was more often to pour ridicule and contempt and herein the weirdness of his natural vocabulary and the patchiness of his reading were of very real value to him. Take the opening words of his letter to Tom Taylor. Quote, "'Dead for a ducat, dead, my dear Tom, and the rattle has reached me by post. "'Sans Racune, say you? "'Bah! "'You scream unkind threats?' And die badly. And another letter to the same unfortunate man. Why, my dear old Tom, I never was serious with you, even when you were among us. Indeed, I killed you quite, as who should say, with seriousness. A rat, a rat, you know, rather cursorily there the very lack of coherence in the style as of a man grasping and choking with laughter drives the insults home with a horrible precision notice the technical skill in the placing of you know rather cursorily at the end of the sentence whistler was full of such tricks tricks that could never have been played by him could never have occurred to him had he acquired the professional touch and not a letter in the book but has some such little sharp felicity of cadence or construction the letters of course are the best thing in the book and the best of the letters are the briefest an exquisite talent like whistler's whether in painting or in writing is always at its best on a small scale on a large scale it strays and is distressed thus the ten o'clock from which i took that passage about the evening mist and the riverside does not leave me with a sense of artistic satisfaction it lacks structure it is not a roundly conceived whole it is but a row of fragments were it otherwise whistler could never have written so perfectly the little letters FOR NO MAN WHO CAN finely GRASP A BIG THEME CAN PLAY EXQUISITELY ROUND A LITTLE ONE. NOR CAN ANY MAN WHO EXCELS IN SCOFFING AT HIS FELLOWS EXCEL ALSO IN TAKING ABSTRACT SUBJECTS SERIOUSLY. CERTAINLY THE LITTLE LETTERS ARE WHISTLER'S passport AMONG THE ELECT OF LITERATURE. LUCKILY I CAN JUDGE THEM WITHOUT PREJUDICE whether in this or that case whistler was in the right or in the wrong is not a question which troubles me at all i read the letters simply from the literary standpoint as controversial essays certainly they were often in very bad taste an urchin scribbling insults upon somebody's garden wall would not go further than whistler often went whistler's mode of controversy reminds me in another sense of the writing on the wall they who were so foolish as to oppose him really did have their souls required of them after an encounter with him they never again were quite the same men in the eyes of their fellows whistler's insults always stuck stuck and spread round the insulted who found themselves at length encased in them like flies in amber you may shed a tear over the flies if you will for myself i am content to laud the amber End of section 10.